Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to write his dissertation, raise a kid, and maybe eventually to get a job. Um, today, I'm very happy to be joined by Professor David Beerling, um, who is at the University of Sheffield, and we're going to be talking about his book, Making Eden, a book about how plants changed a barrack barren planet. Uh, uh, Professor Beerling is the director of a Center of Climate Change Mitigation. Um, and uh, just last week, uh, he and his team published a big paper out in Nature, uh, which you can find at lc3m.org. You can check out uh, Professor Beerling's latest work there. I will uh, drop a link in the show notes. Um, again, that is lc3m.org. Uh, welcome, Professor Beerling. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Um, so uh, I, I really love the book Making Eden. And one of the reasons why I loved it is that it starts off with this concept that really made me feel a little bit ashamed of myself. Um, and that is something that, that you call plant blindness. Um, you say that we kind of ignore plants in our daily life and uh, I realized after reading your book that I, I, I'm really guilty of being plant blind myself. I, I, I take walks with my daughter uh, every day and I notice that she looks at everything. She looks at all the plants and I just breeze by them. Um, why, why do you think we might be so plant blind? It's an interesting question. Uh, I should say from the outset that uh, the concept of plant blindness isn't really mine. It was... Um, was first put forward by two authors from uh, in in North America, and I think part of it, you know, part of it is that so many of us now live in cities mm. that the urban landscape is just so familiar to us that you know, walking down the street, you see skyscrapers, sidewalks, pavements, whatever, and the odd tree, and it doesn't seem at first glance that plants are very important to our world, and I guess you know, in this sort of post-COVID world. With us all in lockdown, the realization that we really do want green spaces to go and relax in, and you know, for our mental health and so on, you do you do you do begin to wonder that maybe maybe COVID nineteen has has taught us something about um, about plant blindness and the realization that perhaps we have taken plants for granted, and actually, when we're deprived of them, we realize that we need to get out there and 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 see some greenery to to reset our our mental health. Yeah, I, I noticed this. There's I. I... My uh, office abuts a, a small garden in our apartment building, and I have I've lived here for five years, and I've never paid attention to anything in the garden. But now that I'm stuck at home all the time, I'm curious about the fact that I don't know what any of the plants in my garden are. Like, there's a bunch of trees, there's some bamboo, there's some flowers. I, I realize I've I've lived here five years, and I haven't ever paid attention to them. I think the you know, one of one or two of the other things that feed into this debate or also this issue is the is the realization that you know plants plant development and growth and reproduction operates on a slightly slower time scale so we're quite used to things happening fast in the social media world or on tv but you know plants develop grow reproduce at, at their own pace and it's not super fast unless you see it in um, time-lapse photography and so perhaps it takes you know, slightly different mindset to stop, stop and appreciate uh, what what's happening and unfolding. So, how did how did you get over your plant blindness? Are you are you one of the, the lucky people who've who've never suffered from it in the first place? I think I was lucky. I grew up in the countryside, and um, 
my parents are both keen gardeners. And so, you know, from a very early age, I was encouraged to grow grow my own vegetables and then get engaged with the garden. And I guess like, you know, many, many, uh, many of these things that shape us as adults is what happened at, in the early years that influenced your kind of outlook further, further down the line. Okay, good. So it's my dad's fault uh, that I have plant blindness. He, he grew up on a farm and when we were growing up, he refused to have a garden because he, he, when he was a kid, he had to weed and, and, and do all the, the, the agricultural tasks and he, he hated it. So that's why I have plant blindness. It's my dad's fault. Good. <laughs> that, that could be it. You know, I mean, it may, it may also be that, um, you know, as I talk about in the book, we're evolutionary. We're kind of hardwired to notice animals because they're the ones that seem to threaten us most. Mm. And, um, you know, you can imagine uh, early in our evolution, we had to worry about the animals that were going to hunt us or animals that we needed to hunt to feed ourselves. And uh, perhaps that's become sort of locked into our mental kind of thought process. Yeah, like the bamboo outside my window isn't going to ever kill me or my kid, but but the the raccoons who, you know, live in the bamboo might. So I, I'm going to start with a with a with a kind of stupid question. But but what 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 is a plant? Like, what are we talking about when we talk about plants? So plants, you know, in a in a very simple um, form, are they're kind of autonomous? They're autonomous photosynthesizing organisms, and, and by that I mean. They make their own food. Mm. So by having, by virtue of having uh, green leaves, a stem and roots, they're able to manufacture their food from thin air and produce more plant biomass. <laughs> and of course, they're not really making food from thin air. They're actually taking in carbon dioxide and water and synthesizing biomass and giving off oxygen. But you know, un- unlike animals that go out and have to hunt, plants are sedentary organisms and they basically extract their food from from thin air using the energy of the sun. Mm-hmm. And so when you, we talked about plant blindness, you explained maybe one of the reasons why we have plant blindness is, is that the plants live in a different kind of chronology. Time is different for them. They live, they live a little slower. And when I was reading your book, I was struck that, that historians have a little bit of plant blindness as well, uh, because plants slow chronology just never or very rarely shows up in our histories your your book is a little bit of an antidote to this it it, it tells the story of how plants came to be on land um and 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 it's a really fascinating story and i i, I want to see you to start us off on, on this and can you tell tell me what what was the earth like before plants started to go onto land what, 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 was it just like a big rock with like a big sea? It's uh, it's mind-bogglingly difficult to try and think about a world without plants. They're so ubiquitous, ubiquitous to us at the moment. But I think the thing you have to imagine is, if it's possible, conceivable, to think of a think of a planet that was um, mainly brown, but it was not entirely devoid of green. So you could imagine, you know, windswept landscapes that are obviously treeless and shrubless. But that perhaps have soggy sedimentary pools with some algae living in them, and instead of these kind of slow flowing rivers that we have today, you could imagine braided rivers with a, an eroding landscape because there's very little vegetation to hold the soils and the landscapes together. So as soon as it rained, you can imagine very sort of flashy rain events and flooding 
And uh, yeah, a very different world to the one to one that we enjoy today. I, I, in my head, I'm just picturing the landscapes really jagged and rocky. Is that is that right, or or <laughs> or no? Well, you know, there, there is there is erosion going on uh, by the wind and the rain. So you could imagine that um, you still sort of had rolling hills to some extent. They just wouldn't have been cloaked in forests of green leaves. <sighs> And what about the oceans? Like, so the oceans are are dead too. No, so the oceans also have um, have photosynthetic algae, and you know, early plant life started uh, in the oceans in the form of very simple algae, and uh, and there they stayed for about a billion years or more before um, plants first made their first tentative steps onto land. Okay, and so 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 uh, one one thing that 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 a little prehistory of this story that that you talk about briefly in your book is is how these plants began to photosynthesize and for for me it was a, it was one of the 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 most mind-boggling things that 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 I read how how did the beginning of photosynthesis start like how did we get these algae that 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 had learned how to make energy from the sun and from carbon dioxide so so in the book i i outline a theory that was put forward by the great um, biologist Lynn Margulis. And this is the theory of endosymbiosis. And this is still the best theory we've got for how plants evolve the ability to photosynthesize. And the idea is that you had some kind of uh, larger algae, photosynthesizing algae, that then got captured by another cell. And instead of being digested, that photosynthesis, that photosynthetic alga, then got incorporated into the genome and the cellular machinery of the larger organism, so that it carried on functioning as a what we now call as a chloroplast. And uh, the amazing thing is that when these, when these, for whatever reason, they didn't, they didn't get digested, and this thing survived. And this only appears to have happened once. It was a singularity in the evolution of land plants. It only appears to have happened once. And uh, from then on, plants had the ability to photosynthesize. And just it's mind-boggling how that's happened. And in terms of, you know, the reprogramming of the cell and the ability of these chloroplasts to then divide every time a cell divides, so that that sister cell or daughter cell gets a set of uh, chloroplasts, is completely amazing. And uh, but it's underlined by the fact that if you sequence the genome of a chloroplast. Uh, you find that it is very similar to a, what we call a cyanobacterial cell. And cyanobacteria are some of the earliest, most primitive bacteria that can photosynthesize. And yet, if you look at the genome of a chloroplast, then you find that it has, if you like, the watermark, the water stamp of a cyanobacteria. And so the age of genomics brought this um, theory of Lynn Margulis into the sort of the modern day era and, and confirm that her earlier speculation that a chloroplast is really an ancient cyanobacteria wasn't was in fact the case. Wow. So 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 when did this happen? When did this moment that, that an algae, a big algae ate a, a cyanobacteria and kind of enslaved it? When 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 did that do we know when that happened? Can we guess? It, it's notoriously difficult to to figure it out, but but the best guess is it happened between about one and one and a half billion years ago. Billion. Billion, yes, that's right. And the remarkable thing is that wasn't the first time it happened. It had also happened prior to that. 
when this organism had captured another um, very primitive bacteria that then became uh, mitochondria. And mitochondria are the uh, cellular units or the battery packs of cells that enable them to do uh, aerobic uh, respiration. So, so it happened. So, this endosymbiosis event, or these endosymbiosis events, actually happened twice. So, first of all, it captured a very pro, very simple protobacteria that went on, went on to become a mitochondria, and then a bit later on, it captured a cyanobacteria, which then uh, ultimately became enslaved to become a chloroplast. Uh, well, I, I, if you hang out with historians, one of the words that we often like to, to, to use uh, to describe the way we think is, is contingency. We, we always talk about how uh, events are contingent. They might not have happened in the way that they did. And this is just, it seems to me like one of the, the ultimate contingencies. If this single-celled organism had not managed to accidentally uh, eat this chloroplast and fail to digest it, if it had done that and then managed not to thrive, it, it would be a completely different earth. It would be, if it hadn't happened at all, then we wouldn't be here because um, you know, basically all, all animals are totally dependent on plants for their food. And so we would have a very different biosphere. So, so we have these 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 algae who have managed to enslave two different kinds of of, of primitive bacteria, uh, and are photosynthesizing. They're photosynthesizing in the ocean. How do they get onto land? How do they make that jump from from ocean onto this rocky, eroding, um, barren brown earth? Well, the, the best guess for for what actually happened is is um, derived not only from fossils, but also from piecing together the evolutionary history of land plants or the family tree of, of plants and algae. Um, and what we find is when you look at the tree and you trace it backwards in time, is that the first groups of algae to make land weren't the marine algae, but the algae that were living in fresh water. And so, you know, for, for a long time, people thought, oh, you know, it's the marine algae that, that made land on the shore and uh, what we actually know now is that the uh, first algae to make land were those that went up through the river systems or that were colonizing freshwater ponds or margins of ponds and living, on, living in those sort of soggy sediments where the first tentative steps on land took place. And they, they took place maybe 500, 450 million years ago, still, you know, a staggeringly long time ago. So there was a really 500 million years maybe where you had photosynthesizing. Um, algae in the oceans before this jump to land happened. Yes, yeah, so the algae living in the oceans were probably there about a billion a billion years before they made these steps to land, and and the great the great puzzle is why it took them so long. Yeah. <laughs> why did it take a billion years for for land plants to have suddenly evolve or to slowly evolve? Or substitute to appear, I should say, from those from those. Yeah, it beginnings. seems it seems like a lot of wasted opportunity. You know, like there's there's this whole big earth out 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 there that you know can su can support something. Why why didn't they make that jump earlier? I mean, well, one possibility is um, that the fossil record is rather meager that far back, and perhaps we're being misled by the fossil record. And there were primitive land plants, but the rocks that preserved them have been uh, destroyed. <laughs> Um, another possibility is that uh, we had to wait for the appearance of freshwater algae because there's something intrinsic about going from freshwater to land that appears to be easier than going from 
very strong saline saltwater onto land. And, and that, that switch in environments from saltwater to, to, to fresh air, if you like, just seems to be too dramatic. And so we had to wait for the evolutionary theatre to play out and for the freshwater algae to appear. And that set the stage for the appearance of land plants. I mean, it makes a, it makes a kind of intuitive sense to me. Like, it, 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 it seems easier to go from kind of like a, a, a scummy pond to dry land than from like a crashing beach to dry land, right? Like that, it, 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 it seems, I, I know that you're, you're a scientist, you don't work on intuition, but it seems to make, make some kind of intuitive sense to me. I think so. I think that, you know, the pieces of the puzzle when viewed in the light of plant evolutionary history do seem to fit together better in that way. Yeah. And, and so what did these, these first, land plants look like I, I i in my head i'm imagining them kind of just like green green like s- slime like some sort of scum stuff like like clinging to, to to rocks i think green slime scum stuff clinging to rocks is probably about right i mean they certainly were nothing <laughs> you can, first of all you can imagine we don't have any fossils of them because they're you know they're far too delicate and uh we all we have are some fossils of freshwater algae, and then uh, a few tens of millions of years later, some some fossils of of the very earliest land plants that were a few millimeters high. So the gap in between there is largely filled with conjecture based on what we know about how the uh, the uh, some of the adaptations might have sprung up in the earliest land plants. But certainly, there were nothing that would have caught your eye if you were out strolling around the, the ponds and, and lakes at that time. So a bunch of and, and what were those adaptations like? What what sort of things did did these pond algae have to do to be able to survive on land? Was it was it just was it an easy shift, or, or did they have to change dramatically? There are a number of things you need to do if you want to be a if you want to convert yourself from an algae to a land plant. Uh, and the first one is really you need some kind of uh, cuticle or, or waxy jacket to stop yourself from drying out, because <laughs> you're going from easily from a kind of freshwater damp environment to suddenly sticking your head above ground and uh, exposing yourself to kind of harsher temperatures brighter sunlight and larger variations in uh, and uh, you know a much drier less humid environment and so the first one of the first challenges you face is is to is to build some kind of waxy cuticle to stop 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 water evaporating from your plant surfaces you need to like put on your coat first essentially you got to put on your coat and uh, you also need to develop um, some kind of protection against the UVB because uh, UV sunlight is uh, attenuated by water. And so you need somewhere to protect your the delicate DNA in your cells from being, um, you know, attacked by uh, UV light. And so you need to, you need to put on your sun cream as well. And so plants had to invent some kind of protection against UV light. And then you need some kind of, uh, attachments for enabling you to take up water because all of a sudden we've gone from living in water to standing in it, as it were. And so plants need to invent or need to evolve, needs to evolve, I should say, um, very fine rootlets that enable them to take up water through their uh, from their sediments and from the from the uh, soil that they're forming and uh, move it around up to the uh, 
uh, parts above above ground. I, 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 I have a seven month old daughter, and uh, uh, this kind of reminds me of all the stuff that I have to do to get her outside in, in in the California summer. I have to, you know, put on her sunscreen. I have to put on her coat so she doesn't get cold because in the Bay Area it gets cold, uh, and I have to uh, bring water or milk so that she doesn't dry out. So, so early this early pond algae had to make a similar kind of adjustment. Um, so how, how long do, were those plants, like those, those first kind of pond slime that, that were on rocks that had their, their waxy cuticles and their, their rootlets? You would, I said you would call them, I guess you might call them sort of proto-lamb plants. And, uh, you know, as I said, it's, it, it's speculative as to what they might look like. But you could imagine if you were looking at the plant evolutionary tree, some clues might come from looking at the the most ancient lineages of land plants that are with us today. And um, some of those, um, there is still some debate about which ones are the most old, are the oldest. But some of them are uh, these what we call the non-vascular land plants, so, so liverworts and hornworts and mosses. And these very simple organisms are still quite complex compared to those very earliest proto-land plants. So, so do, I, 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 I looked these up on Google as I was reading, but can, can you describe what, what these look like? I know what a moss looks like because I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, which is a, a very mossy place. But what do liverworts look like and, and club mosses? So, so liverworts, are, um, they come in many different shapes and sizes, but uh, one of the most common forms is a very sort of flat uh, slab of green photosynthetic tissue. And if you take a walk along the side of a stream or a river and look carefully at the boulders that are just being splashed by the water that goes through, you'll see there are these little green patches on them. And those green patches, more often than not, will be uh, liverwort. And some of them are the sort of flat patches and some of them have very simple uh photosynthetic appendages and simple stem green stem bright green stems and uh they live very happily by the by the water there and uh are, are you know as a case of plant blindness are often overlooked by everybody that walks past them yeah I, i've probably what passed by these these plants millions of times in my life or, or hundreds of thousands and i've never paused to wonder what they were they're just kind of like Un- uncategorized green stuff. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe that that could be my my title for this episode: uncategorized categorizing the uncategorized green stuff with with Professor David Beerling. Um, so uh, uh, you called these 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 I'm, in my head they're still just green slimes. Like, but I'm sorry, but you called these 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 primitive uh, plants um, these first plants that have taken the jump uh, taken the jump from from. Uh, ponds to land. You call them non-vascular plants. What? 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 Uh, I assume then that the next step is to get a vascular plant, and I wonder what you mean because I know that, like, I'm not that dumb. I know that vascular means like to to have lungs, but uh, plants don't have lungs, so I'm a bit confused. That's right. I should have explained. So, so uh, non so vascular tissue is the tissue that allows are the, essentially the tubes that connects the roots. Uh, up through the stems to the leaves. And uh, this is the vascular tissue, and this is what the plants need to move water around from roots to shoots. 
and also to uh, move their food around when they first synthesize it in the green pot, back down to the stems and the roots wherever they need it. Whereas the, the earliest vascular plants, sorry, the earliest land plants didn't were called non-vascular plants because they didn't have these, these uh, vascular tissues. They were very small and diminutive, and they just had very simple water conducting cells. If you're a plant, you can get bigger if you get these tubes inside of you. That's the bottom line. Yeah, you can get, if, if you're able to move your water around more efficiently, then you can risk being slightly bigger and exposing that part of the, sh- the plant to you to the uh, you know to the environmental conditions higher above the soil surface, and still manage to get water up there through your um, vascular tissue. Why is it important for them to be to be higher? Like I I, I know in, intuitively that like plants like to be higher. It's why like trees have big trunks and have their but 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 why? I guess you know it's all part of the answer. It's all part of the um, struggle for existence. Uh, you know what makes what drives plants is the energy supplied by uh, sunlight, and the taller you are, then you know you're taller than if you're taller than your neighbour or the surrounding plants, then you've got affords you greater opportunities for catching, uh, catching, capturing more solar energy and growing better. And if you don't grow as tall, then um, the danger is that you'll get shaded by your neighbours or your competitors, and then you won't. Then you're at a disadvantage because you're capturing less solar energy. So, so, so these first vascular plants were able to get, uh, were able to risk being taller, to risk being bigger, and it let them get more sunlight and now compete. What, what, what did they, what did they look like? Did they look like the sort of stuff that I have in my garden right now, or did they look really different? These, these first vascular plants. Well, we're very, we're very lucky to have uh, a good fossil record of some of the earliest vascular plants that go back. Uh, about 420 million years. And some of the uh, best examples are of a genus called Cooksonia. And I think the best way to imagine these plants is to give your listeners a sense of scale is that if you if you um, lay a needle on its side, you could imagine 30 or 40 of these little plants, maybe five millimeters tall, hmm. all lined up along the length of that needle. I wow. mean, they are... We're still talking about very tiny plants, but they have a number of quite sophisticated adaptations to enable them to thrive on land. And so they have little rootlets, and they have their waxy jacket that we mentioned earlier, and they have some vascular tissues. And they also have these these adaptations, these uh, microscopic gas valves called stomata. And equipped with leaves, roots, and stomata and vascular tissue, Plant life was was primed really with all the essential ingredients to enable it to start to thrive on land. Hmm. Let's 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 jump ahead and, and, and talk about a shift from from these first vascular plants to um, kind of a new a new epoch in plants, which are I'm going to mangle all these scientific words. Happens in the late Devonian with the evolution of the gymnosperms. Can you tell me what's a what's a gymnosperm and why are they? That I, I don't want to use the word better, but why are they better than, than the stuff that happened before? Well, uh, gymnosperms are essentially a group of, uh, um, uh, you know, I guess most familiar to us in the form of um, conifers. And, and they were really uh, among the earliest groups that started to make wood, or uh, which is essentially um, lignified tissue. Hmm. And so you now have the ability of... Um, of plants that have gone from being very small 
but equipped with the right ingredients to gaining this extra this extra ability to make a woody trunk. Hmm. And if you can start making a woody trunk, then you know, bingo, you can start growing taller without the risk of being blown over. Yeah. So I, I, I was reading this book at, uh, on a family holiday to Crater Lake, which is in, in Southern Oregon, and it's this big conifer forest. And uh, I, I looked out my window when I read about the evolution of gymnosperms, and I just saw this huge, you know, <laughs> huge forest full of these, these ancient big trees. And I was a little, a little wowed. Um, is that, is that the only big difference between gymnosperms and what happened before the fact that they could get woody and, 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 and grow up tall? Well, there were, um, you know, in addition to the adaptations that we talked about, the, um, there were kind of quite marked changes in the life cycle of these, of these plants. So the early, the early, the earliest land plants had a very simple life cycle closely related to how algae reproduce. And then uh, when you had conifers, then you had more sophisticated form of reproduction that involved cones, female eggs and male um, pollen. But of course, it was still it was still uh, quite a wasteful business because you have to put a huge amount of pollen in the air in order to try and um, fertilize the eggs. Yeah, Crater Lake is 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 uh, uh, this this deep. Um, clear, clean lake in in southern Oregon, and when we went there, all of the little signs say, "This is the cleanest water in America. Don't 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 uh, litter." And when we actually looked in the lake, there was this huge wash of of yellow powder, and I thought, "Oh, like America's really gotten bad. We've polluted the cleanest lake in America." And I, I asked a guy, "What is that?" And she said, "Oh, it's it's the pine pollen." And all of the pine trees just, you know, spew out tons and tons of pollen on the off chance that one of those little bits will hit another pine cone. You can see how wasteful it is. That's right. And I think uh, there's an American writer, um, possibly not as popular as he should be called, uh, Lauren Isley, who wrote a book about um, the evolution of plants called The Immense Journey. And uh, he put it, and I put this quote in the in the book, you know, our present-day pine forests represent plants of a pollen-disseminating variety. Once fertilization no longer required exterior water, the march over drier regions could be extended. Oh! Instead of spores, simple primitive seeds carry some nourishment for the young plant to develop. So, so essentially, yeah, it freed them from reproducing in water to being able to reproduce on land and and that was one of the key things that enabled plants to then turn the land green and cover it with forests. Yeah, again, again, this makes intuitive sense. Those those first vascular plants, they seem kind of damp and, and, and mushy to me, and they need to stay by the water. But I, conifers don't need any, they need some water, but they don't need it to be that wet. And that's because you're saying the way that they reproduce, they're able to reproduce without water around them. That that was the key. That was the key development that that kind of freed them from from their water environment. But so, uh, I look out in, in my back garden, and I think I can see one conifer because it's California. But but nothing else is a conifer. What what happened? What's the next step after 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 these gymnosperms? Well, the, the next step is the evolution of uh, seeds and flowers, the angiosperms or the flowering plants. And this really, this has really happened in the Cretaceous, or possibly, possibly earlier, sort of about 150, maybe 200 million years ago. 
and and the flowering plants are really the lords of the plant kingdom. Once they arrived, they they basically orchestrated a global takeover, <laughs> and their success was really um, driven by uh, the fort, by their ability to make flowers and then also to make uh, seeds. And flowers are really specialized devices for tricking insects or birds or mammals into pollinating them. And then once you've made the seed. Again, you know, you've got the you've got the adaptation there that enables you to go on and colonize more, more and more land area, because uh, your seed is essentially a self-contained packet that enables the next generation to grow wherever wherever the seed is disseminated. So it has a little uh, embryo inside it, and then it's packed around with a load of nutrients and a tough coat to protect it from uh, dehydration and from the uh, uh, rigors of life. And then when the time's right, of course, and it starts to germinate, then it can draw on that nutrient within the seed and it's off and running. And, and, and can, is, is it that, that, that flowering plants can invest a little bit more in their seeds because they don't have to take this, they don't have to spend so much money producing all this pollen to, to spread it out in the air? Or Certainly, yes. Yeah, it's, it's a more um, efficient form of fertilization than the rather frail form of fertilization of gymnosperms. And again, this this uh, works at their advantage. So we have we have the, the 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 early vascular plants that need to rely on water to reproduce, and then we have the uh, the, the gymnosperms, which kind of you know do it all on their own. They're big and hard and have this lignified bark, and they they can handle it all themselves. And then you have the angiosperms, the flowering plants that 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 rely on on symbiosis of tricking other animals to help them out. I think that's a very good uh, uh, summary of, the, of those stages. And we believe that the evolution of angiosperms essentially occurred in the tropics. And then you can imagine that forests of uh, very dense canopies of angiosperms then sprang up in the tropics and spread out from that time, orchestrating the global takeover ever since. And with it, of course, we see the diversification of animals that are involved in pollination and that live on the on the trees themselves. So we see diversification of butterflies and beetles and other organisms that occupy the um, the canopy of these complex trees and trees and plants. When, when, I missed this part in 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 prompting you to tell the story. But when when did animals come on land? Like how long was it just a plant only world? Or plant only dry land. The um, if you if you take at about four hundred and fifty four hundred and sixty million years ago, the first plants, then it took animals possibly another hundred hundred million years before they managed to crawl up, and uh, the, the first vertebrates to appear on on land. So the gap was probably 50 to 100 million years from plants to animals. I mean, part of me is just so stunned at, at the huge timescales uh, that we're dealing with. It, may, like, I, I, it makes the stuff that I study, which, you know, my friends think is a really long time ago. You know, I studied the 18th century, like 300, 400 years ago. It makes that look like nothing. It makes that look like recent history. Here we're talking about millions and even billions of years. Um what 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 is it like human history look like for you in the 
this non-plant blind chronology? Like, how do you see uh, all the human stuff that, that that historians worry about from the perspective of this deep history of plants? Well, I'm fascinated by the history of science and uh, also fascinated by plant evolution. And I guess it's if you work in this field for long enough, it, um, it's easy to become blasé about a hundred million years here or a billion million a billion years there but i think what's equally interesting of course is that you know the history of plants over 500 million years has mostly been figured out in the last 50 years uh, thanks to advances in science both in terms of understanding the fossil record but also trying to um understand sort of the molecular history of plants as well yeah have we have, have humans had any dent in the story like is it just is it still kind of the 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 like a plant only world with humans on the margin or like or no ultimately the rise of humans has, has become you know the story of the planet unfortunately and humans now dominate our environment to such an extent that geologists want to call it a new epoch and call it the Anthropocene to mark the importance of humans in the global environment. And unfortunately, we're consuming the biosphere. We're uh, destroying forests to plant more food and we're burning fossil fuels and releasing more and more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So we're triggering very the great acceleration, as it's been called, where CO2 is rising, temperatures rising, Oceans are acidifying, and the planet is essentially in great, in very poor, in great, under great pressure. We're consuming far more than the planet can return. So, so in another hundred million years, if there are humans or future humans around, they will look. And they did a podcast about the history of plants. Right now would be another big landmark in their story. I think, yeah, the the extent to which um, humans are altering the environment is. That if you uh, if there are humans around in a hundred million years and they decide to look at the rock record back in the twenty first century, they will find imprinted in that record very clearly the, uh, the signatures of, of of human society in terms of their combustion of fossil fuels and uh, their uh, destruction of the planet. Unfortunately. <laughs> And right now you're working on research about how, kind of about how your understanding of plants might help to mitigate this shock of the Anthropocene. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So for the first half of my career, I was interested in trying to understand the evolution of terrestrial ecosystems and plants and how they influenced atmospheric carbon dioxide levels and climate. And about uh, six years ago, uh, I spent more time thinking about how we can use this research and knowledge in a translational way to figure out how we could actually take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere by changing how we manage uh, our agricultural croplands. And, and, and what does that look like? Like, uh, Part of me feels really grim about this story that we've just told about the evolution of plants and then humans consumption undermining this 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 green world that we have but but is there any reason to 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 hope is there anything that we might do so the, so the work that that we're we're um researching is really thinking about how we might um figure out how we how we might take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere whilst at the same time 
trying to restore our soils and improve food security. And uh, one of the ways we could do this would be to add um, a crushed natural volcanic rock called basalt to our croplands. And, and the advantages of doing that is that it reverses the acidification of the soils that's caused by intensification of agriculture. And it also releases or, or replenishes micronutrients that are being stripped out of the soil by intensification of agriculture. And so those two things, reversing soil acidification, adding micronutrients, could then boost yields and restore our soils and at the same time capture carbon dioxide because as these rocks, as this uh, basalt rock actually undergoes chemical weathering, it removes CO2 and stores it in the soils and the oceans. So we think there's a win-win here. And um, we set up a centre five years ago to try and figure out all different aspects of the problem. It's called uh, the carbon drawdown um, approach is called enhanced weathering. And uh, we look at all different aspects from earth system science through to public engagement, through to um, actually doing field trials out, out in different field sites at a global global network of sites for a range of different um, agri-ecosystems. And so, so this is kind of like another stage, stage of symbiosis. We, you talked about how flowering plants uh, uh, evolve with a symbiosis with insects and, and, and birds and mammals. In the book, you talk, they have a fascinating discussion of how um, uh, uh, roots evolved as part of a symbiosis with um, symbiotic fungi. I think um, there's some symbiotic fungi in there, um, and now we're this. This this is a proposal to have a, another sort of symbiosis where humans and plants interact uh, uh, to try to, to to draw down carbon by by doing this thing called enhanced weathering. Is that is that an okay way to to characterize it? I think you would call it a, a symbiosis. Really, I mean, the interesting thing about adding basalt to crops is one of the one of the only or uh, uh, fertilizer additions to soils that's acceptable to the organic farming community because it's a natural product. And we've been abusing our agricultural soils for so long that um, you know now they're in a rather desperate state, and if we can then utilize natural rocks to restore the soils and draw down carbon it seems like a seems like a nice a nice symbiosis to try and promote great well well thank you very much for for joining me today uh P- professor beerling i love the book it's called uh making eden it is available uh uh online from from your local bookstores at a, at a very reasonable price uh it's great and you should pick it up um i would like to thank you again professor beerling for coming on the show and i'd like to thank of course uh, Duncan Barton for our images and Jonathan Lear for our music. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, do all those things that you do with shows that you like. Uh, you can find the website for the show at historian.live where I will have show notes that will have links to all the stuff that we talked about today. I will see you guys next week. Mm-hmm.